Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. My name is Alan Popcotter, and you're listening to Call Talk for July 18, 2018. Today's topic is fair trade outsourcing, sustainable, ethical, and profitable. If you are listening live, we invite you to be part of the show and ask questions. Here's how you do it. Email me at calltalk at benchmarkportal.com. I want to remind everyone that all of our shows are archived and available to listen to at benchmarkportal.com any time of the day. And now I'd like to introduce the host of Call Talk, Bruce Belfiore. Thank you, Alan, and welcome back to Call Talk, everyone. You know, we all know that call centers are notoriously difficult places no matter where they're located. And employee attrition is oftentimes high, absenteeism is a major problem, especially in many offshore outsourcing operations. Well, today we're going to talk with an industry visionary who is bringing what he calls fair trade outsourcing to the way these offshore outsourced call centers are managed and turn them into desirable workplaces. That person is Mike Dershowitz. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me, Bruce. I'm uh, really excited to be here and uh, show a little bit uh, to the world about fair trade outsourcing. Okay, great. Well, uh, for our audience, Mike Dershowitz is the CEO of Rethink Staffing, a social impact outsourcing company that aims to make a measurable impact on the lives of people in developing populations. His idea is to put as many people as possible into impact sourcing work that pays people up to three times the poverty rate of the country they live in and provides them skills in a context that makes them more productive and more happy. This will eventually help them become capital owners and contribute to the economic development of their respective communities. Mike believes he can achieve this goal through social impact outsourcing, a managerial framework that he has developed based on impact sourcing and principles of social economics. So, with that, I'd like to, uh, again, welcome you to the show and ask you a first question, Mike, which is, what's the philosophy behind fair trade outsourcing, and how does it work? Yeah, thanks, Bruce. <clears throat> that is a, uh, that's a great start. And, you know, as a social economist, I, I really believe that entrepreneurs can help shape society uh, to better take care of its people. You see a lot of business leaders questioning whether or not business's sole goal is to just make profit. Um, there's a famous man in England back in the 18th century by the name of uh, Robert Owen, whose ideas inspired me to uh, create a, a, our own version of, of what he called new harmony uh, in my chosen industry, the, the outsourcing industry. Uh, I've come to call it fair trade outsourcing, uh, which combines the principles of fair trade and impact sourcing and applies them to how call centers are, are managed today. So, you know, I really believe that to have a clear understanding of how fair trade outsourcing works, we need to look back at history. So in the 1790s, it was the height of the Industrial Revolution in England, and capitalists at the time, who were solely focused on profit, ran their mills really as sweatshops. Long hours, dangerous working conditions, and low pay. Child labor was very, very common and drunkenness at work was expected. Uh, it was really hell on earth. But there was a textile mill owner in Scotland 
named Robert Owen who had a different vision. Owen's mills were safe, they were well-functioning, and they were full of the most modern machinery and safety precautions of the day. In other mills, 12 to 16-hour days were common, but Owen uh, actually invented the eight-hour workday, and he summarized his philosophy of what he wanted for his workers as eight hours of labor, eight hours of leisure, and eight hours of rest. Owen eventually showed us that an almost symbiotic relationship exists between uh, worker satisfaction and revenue growth. Uh, I'm a, a big devotee of Muhammad Yunus, the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist who founded Grameen Bank, is often called the banker to the poor. Um, and in his latest book, uh, A World of Three Zeros, Yunus makes a similar point, and he discusses specifically how to reduce global youth unemployment by saying that humans will and, and always will yearn to be productive, creative, and to progress throughout their lives. This drive, really inherent in humanity, uh, to create and be productive leads to external gains in the economy and, and for the individual, such as increased income and, and ultimately greater profits. Mm -hmm. And so contemporary ideas like impact sourcing um, and agent happiness are built on these philosophies that try and combine the power of labor and capital symbiotically to, to produce results that surpass people's expectations. You know, we've, we've all heard of the company who just seems to be able to do it in a way that its competitors can't. Uh, we often call them the most admired companies. And m when you, you know, really peek under the hood, you'll see that, you know, what they've done is, is they've, they've really figured out how to, get, how to get the best out of their people in a way that makes their people the happiest. Um, mm -hmm. And so Owen's, Owen's ideas are, are pretty historical, and you know, they ended up being very sustainable, ethical, ethical and, and, and are they profitable? The answer is hell yeah. Um, in fact, in a lot of cases, treating your people well is, is more profitable than treating them poorly. So Owen's lessons, you know, he taught us a number of, of different things. But the first thing was is that he knew that humans inherently wanted to progress in their lives. So in his mills, he started training programs that taught them skills other than the, the rote mill work. That was the only means of making a living for the poor, uneducated classes. He eventually started building entire communities for his workers so he could ensure their health and safety. You know, he gave them housing. He built them schools and eventually churches. Uh, and Owen realized that if his workers felt safe at work, could advance in their lives, and feel valued, they would be happier, more productive, and take more ownership of their work. Uh, and this would be, and they would be rewarded with economic and, and personal progress, and he would be rewarded for making the conditions for their success possible. Uh, because of that, his mill quickly grew to be one of the largest, uh, most productive, and profitable in England by uh, 1810. That's, and that's, so for me... I was just going to say that that's, yeah. that's great uh, he, background and really a great uh, lesson too. I mean, I think uh, uh, humans, as uh, in in general, as they go through different uh, stages of development, need to come to terms with how progress is actually metabolized and then actually optimized. And certainly, he did that in terms of the industrial revolution. Um, if you take the case of Italy, that I'm very familiar with, about a century or so later, uh, a guy named Camillo Olivetti did something similar in northern Italy to uh, make sure that his workers were taken well care of, uh, you know, it was 
you know, if you were a parent, then that was taken into account. Uh, the the housing was uh, something that the company took care of, but it wasn't a company town type of thing where they tried to keep you in. They just tried to keep you progressing. So uh, all very, very interesting things and things that in terms of management practices in contact centers today uh, can bring home a lot of the uh, management lessons that we try to do, but we don't always do as well as we could. Uh, let me let you finish there, and I'll, I'll ask you to, you know, how this can be applied specifically to our industry. Yeah, I mean, to me, Owen's ideas are just as applicable today as they were two centuries ago. Uh, you know, even though we now have sophisticated techniques and computing power that gives us great models, um, you know, that we've tried to develop to, to manage our resources for results, we we sort, of, we sort of continue to ignore the value that employees bring to the organization at, at the most basic level. Um, we kind of ignore their humanity sometimes, and, and it's, it's kind of sadder that one of the most people-intensive industries in the world, call centers, uh, are, are really kind of can be some of the worst culprits of this, of this type of neglect. Um, and so, you know, as we look forward to the type of management techniques that, that really work, um, you know, we, we see a number of things, but certainly, you know, first and foremost is uh, safety at work, mm-hmm. positive work environment, and then ultimately, you know, fair pay. And to me, you know, fair trade is, we, we call it fair trade because the fair trade movement really came out of this concept of, you know, producers and suppliers working together to set equitable pricing for, for goods in the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, that, you know, that means making sure that call center agents are paid in a way that doesn't make them you know, really poor or underprivileged in some format in their economies, in their respective societies. Um, and so we do a lot with benchmarking pay and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's this combination of the uh, culture. I think you, a lot of what you talk about goes to culture culture that really needs to start at the top in terms of a vision of the kind that you have and that uh, probably needs to be uh, thought about by more leaders in our industry. Um, and then the basics, which are you know compensation and communication and how all these things are brought across to people. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, especially I think in today's environment, unless the people at the top whether it's the director of, of, of a call center or, or even above, unless they have the courage to say, look, you know, we're, we need to treat people in a certain way, in a better way, uh, in order to really achieve the goals of, of our business and, and to really help serve our customers, I, I don't think it changes. Um, you know, culture is, you know, they say, you know, I, I once heard a very famous quote that, you know, if you don't, as a business leader, if you don't build your company's culture, you know, your people will build it for you and it'll, you know, it, it won't be what you want or, and certainly won't be what you like. Um, right. And so it, it does have to start from the top. And, and that's why, you know, at least for us, it, you know, it made sense to really build the company around that concept of, of fair trade. So. Mm-hmm. And, and that concept of fair trade was clearly communicated to the agents and to the other, the supervisors, other people in the, in the, in the uh, center. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We, it's very easy for us to, to communicate it these days because all they have to do is ask their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
these days, you know, people ask, you know, I think if you're a call center manager, especially if you're in a geographic area where you compete for call center, you know, for agent, for agents, for labor, um, you know, your reputation is everything. And if if there's bad stuff on the street about you, you know, people are going to hear about it. Um, I think in the developing world, uh, especially in certain parts of the world where societies in general are, are more communal. And we're definitely talking about Southeast Asia and South Asia. Uh, in those, in those societies, people talk to people all the time. And so if, if you've got a bad rep on the street, you know, people are going to hear about it. And, and, you know, and honestly, Bruce, I mean, I'm, I'm talking from experience because when we first got into this industry, our, our, I think our ideas were pure, but our methods hadn't really been developed and we made mistakes and you know we made mistakes in hiring managers that you know that we didn't give clear direction to that unfortunately didn't have good hearts and and you know they caused some trouble and we had to take some drastic action to to repair and we did and in seeing us treat other agents or people well you know that's how our culture gets enforced so when i talk to my learning and development people i tell them look it's your job to communicate the information and make sure that there's enough of it in people's heads so that when they live the culture on a day-to-day basis with their managers, with their colleagues in doing their jobs, they can see those examples happening in real, in real life, in real time. And until they experience a piece of your culture, they don't really understand the company culture. But if you don't do the work up front to know what it is and to communicate it, they're not going to know and they're not going to recognize it when it happens. Mm-hmm. Yep. And some of the things that work with uh, call centers in this country, uh, which are, for instance, making sure you have very good lines of communication with senior managers, open door, uh, make sure that people understand what the metrics are that they're looking at, what the accountability is, uh, and asking them for their input so that they actually become part of the process uh, in the kind of context that you're talking about uh, overseas. And I know that you're particularly familiar with the Philippines. Uh, is it the same thing? Have you found that the, uh, that the same techniques are the ones that create engagement, uh, that um, you know, make, it, make it so that people do feel part of it and part of a, a culture that's lifting them up? So we at, at Rethink Staffing, we have a, an, a core piece of our culture, which we call the Agent Bill of Rights. And it is, a, 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 it is really 10 statements, 10 rights that I wrote to try and communicate what we were promising our agents at, at our core. Um, and right number five is, you know, your managers, um, you know, will listen to you um, and, and hear what you have to say. Um, and so we felt so strongly about the communication aspect that we, we enshrined it as a right for our agents. And that honestly has made one of the biggest differences in the world to the point where when we do customer SAT survey or excuse me, employee SAT surveys, you know, we hear the, the fact that managers actually listen as core. So I don't think in this day and age, a people heavy company can survive without transparent and clear communication, both from the bottom up and the top down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I guess to fully answer your question, it doesn't matter where in the world that company is. 
you know, because at our yeah. core, humans are, are intelligent, incredibly perceptive beings, and, you know, they, they need to know what's going on. Uh, otherwise, they'll go someplace where they do know what's going on. Right, right. One of the things, we did a uh, survey, a bunch of surveys, actually. We did a study that involved 5,000 uh, agents, and one of the key things that came through was, uh, in terms of culture and in terms of contentedness, was trust. And one of the, if you dig down into trust, uh, a big part of that is communication and communication that's consistent and that people can rely on in terms of, uh, you know, what they're thinking about you and what they're, how they're planning their lives and uh, how they're feeling about the company. So uh, really interesting. Um, now, Mike, you've been doing this for, for some time now. Um, one of the things that your philosophy wants to promise is sustainability uh, and profitability along with the ethical component of it. So have you seen, are the results sustainable, ethical, and profitable? And can you, uh, can you tell us about that claim? So uh, to be honest, you know, we didn't really expect this philosophy to, to be delivering the results it is this soon. Um, You know, we've, we've really, we've really only been at this, in this framework, you know, about 30 months. Um, and I know that, you know, there are people listening that have been in the industry for 30 years. Um, and so, you know, we have this, this young man, I, I want to tell you this brief story. Uh, uh, we have this, this young man working for one of our pioneering accounts uh, for nearly, nearly, I guess he's been with us about three years now. Um, you know, he's not a college graduate, which is a, a big deal for Filipino employers, right? They, they want everyone to be college graduates. Um, and, you know, his monthly salary is 1.7 times that of the, the minimum wage in the Philippines, which is good, you know, for a call center. Um, but because of his hard work, um, even at just 1.75 times that of the minimum wage, he was actually able to save enough money uh, to buy the land that he and his family have been working on, that he and his family have actually been working, had been working as, as rice farmers, as tenant rice farmers in, in one of the provinces in, in the Philippines. Um, and now he's actually earned enough money and saved enough where, you know, he can, he's built a concrete home for his family to replace the, the worn down Nippa hut, which is kind of a, you know, a native hut with temporary materials, uh, where, where he and his family lived for all of his life. And, uh, what I'm most proud of about this young man is that, uh, after he got done with that, after he got done with, you know, buying the land for his family and giving them, you know, and, and making them more sustainable farmers and building them a house that doesn't blow over every time there's a typhoon. Um, he then started, he then actually put up his own microcredit business, offering small loans to, to, to neighboring farmers. Um, and, you know, now he's earning, you know, he and his family are earning substantial profit from the land that they're farming, but he's also helping to ease the financial burdens of people in his community because he's, he's not charging the usurious rates that the money lenders in these rural communities charge. He's charging, you know, kind of standard rates inside the Philippine economy. And so, you know, when you, you know, the, the thing that I think people don't understand about the potential for the call center industry is that when you give somebody a job that is benchmarked against that minimum wage, when the minimum wage is the only other option they have, when you're able to pay them X times the minimum wage, it, you know, that is such a strong economic driver that it's like this domino effect on how a small, low, really low risk investment in a low income economy can result 
to you know to generate significant social and economic gains in the life of our agents, their families, and then by extension their their respective communities. Um, I bring this young man up all the time because you know he's the kind of micro lending you know little business that actually again Mohammed Yunus you know uh, a person I, I admire greatly promoted through Grameen Bank. Um, and, you know, he founded it on the principles of, of trust and solidarity. And it works incredibly well in close to communities like the Philippines because everybody knows each other. Um, so, you know, when you see call centers and, and if we build them on this concept of, of impact sourcing, like what we were able to do for this young man, you know, through our call center job, um, you know, it really helps to build these deep connections between one another, between the people in this community. And this then fosters that that sense of solidarity and, and trust. Um, so if we can create solidarity and trust, what we get in return is uh, a much higher level of work ownership. And that high level of work ownership is the key. And so this is a long way of saying, if you treat people well, you know, as a call center manager, what you get is much more ownership and work. And for those call center managers that are listening, we all know what I'm talking about. I don't have to go into detail. You know that, you know, in, in call centers that struggle, Work ownership, you know, caring about work is low. And so inherently we come to the starting gate with a client, meaning that our people are going to do their darndest to serve that client and by extension that's clients' customers. Um, and not only do we see it in higher productivity and higher quality rates of work, but most tangibly, which is comparable across accounts, is that we see you know, historically low absenteeism and attrition rates. And both for rethink staffing over the last two years has been, you know, 10 times below the industry average. And, you know, we, we know to a large extent, I don't think we've proven it to the level of, of, of specificity or, or of uh, statistical truth that, you know, you, you could probably do for us, Bruce, but, you know, we know that there is that direct connection between our philosophy, our application of that philosophy and these results. And so to me, you know, that, that really shows how we can be sustainable, ethical, and, and really profitable. Um, and I think uh -huh. if, if other companies and other call centers think about that philosophy and work to apply it, you know, I, I think they'll, they'll get similar results. Mm -hmm. Excellent. The, the great, great insights. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was you were talking about the community and sense of community that exists in some other places. But uh, what's happened with social media is it's not exactly the same kind of community, certainly, but it has created community and it's created buzz and it's created, uh, you know, uh, the means by which people communicate with each other and get the word out. And as call center managers, I mean, there's all kinds of implications to that. Obviously, we won't get them into them here. But uh, one of the ones that you were talking about was how it has a big impact on reputation in places like the Philippines because people talk to each other. And uh, the same thing uh, is true for, you know, managers in the United States, uh, in Europe, or wherever they may be listening from. Um, because of the existence of social media, because that will create community and communication uh, that uh, either is going to be positive or it's going to be negative. And uh, if it's negative, it's going to have a negative impact on you in terms of the kind of hiring you can do and uh, the kind of culture that you can build, which you've talked about so well here. Um, that's great. Well, before we go to listener questions, is there any other point that you'd like to bring up, uh, Mike? Uh, you know, I, I guess the one thing I wanna I wanna say to everyone is that you know I don't 
you know, I don't necessarily think we've changed the formula for managing people, you know, that significantly. Um, you know, I think we still, you know, at our core, we're still a call center. We're still an outsourced call center. You know, we still apply industry best practices um, when it comes to things like IT and compliance and as well as, you know, other things we use to motivate people like, you know, performance bonuses or, mm-hmm. or you know, individual contests or, or things like that. Um, but, you know, I think what we do do is that we've built it on this, this sort of trusting and empathetic really framework. And more than anything else, we always ask, hey, what's going on in our agents' lives? And instead of asking, are they having a problem at home? Is, there, is somebody sick? You know, we also, we ask those questions, but we also say, what's going on in their economic lives? You know, what, yep. really, you know, a, as an actor in their society, in their, in their economy, how are they doing? Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I do want to talk about quickly a project that I've recently greenlighted that I'm, I'm really excited about, um, which is, um, you know, transportation in the developing world is, is a core driver of absenteeism. And it's also a huge insecurity um, when it comes to how people live their lives, relying on public transportation. And it really spends a lot of time. And so um, we're currently raising funds to actually start our own microcredit program uh, to buy uh, our employees a small batch of, of motorcycles um, for them to use in their daily use. Um, and the idea is to, to let our agents ride the bikes while they, they pay off the cost bit by bit without interest. Um, and it'll really give them a lot of extra time in their day. You know, some agents, even though they may only live, you know, four miles or five miles from the office at, on public transportation in the developing world, that could be a, an hour and a half commute. Um, and so, you know, we think that this is a small amount to make a, a huge impact and a worthy investment in their future. So we're always looking for things like that. And it's because we look at the economics of, of what's going on in their lives. Mm, very cool. And when you think about it, uh, the kind of thing that uh, Owens did and that Olivetti did in terms of uh, trying to figure out what are those basic needs and maybe a little bit more than the mm-hmm. basic needs that uh, people have that you could make it easier for them to actually acquire uh, because sometimes there's simply barriers to acquiring it, uh, what you're trying to do with uh, transportation and that sort of thing. Um, very, very good. Very good to hear. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking I did a, um, a webinar yesterday that was uh, calling Measuring Your Culture. And uh, really, there's there are ways to actually do that. And um, uh, I think you're on to, to some very exciting ways of doing that. Well, with that, let's, let's turn things over to Alan a second. And I think he's got a question or two from the listeners. Alan? Yes, we got a couple questions in, and this one is from Lisa. If we are an in-house contact center, can we apply the same principles you talk about? Yeah, yeah, I think actually in-house contact centers probably have more freedom than than outsourced contact centers or uh, would, because you know, you've probably only got one set of decision makers to convince, whereas an outsourced call center may have their own internal management and then client management, you know, to convince if, if changes are to be made. Um, outsourced contact centers also get, you know, can get squeezed by their contract arrangements. Um, so the, the first thing I would say is, is, yes, absolutely you can. I think you'll have an easier go at it than, you know, we necessarily do. I mean, we certainly turn down business frequently because, you know, people are asking us to operate in a way that we don't believe in. Um, and, and so you can't. And I would tell you that the first thing to do is to take a look at your compensation structure and benchmark it against your local community. 
You know, um, I think I've, I've sat in front of a few contact center agents when I ask them, you know, what they pay. Uh, nobody pays the federal minimum wage anymore. That's not realistic. But even if you're paying in the U.S., you know, $9 an hour, $10 an hour, um, you know, you'd be, you, you, may not, you may or may not be surprised to learn that at 9 or $10 an hour, that, you know, that person is a member of the working poor in most places in the United States. And so, you know, like it or not, you, you know, you're employing poor people. Um, and you may not think of them that way and they may not appear that way, but economically that's the truth. And that poor person has a lot of, of other challenges and hurdles in their lives that, you know, the rest of us don't. And, you know, I would encourage you to, to be thinking about how do you, you know, how do you get them out of being poor? And, um, you know, you'd be surprised what an, an hour or two, you know, a dollar or two an hour raise can, can really do economically, you know, to someone that's poor. So. And, you know, if you need a uh, justification for that, beyond the social and all that sort of thing, if you're worried about the bean counters, and let's face it, Mike, uh, in the contact center field, we have people who tend to be right-brained, who tend to be people, people, et cetera. For many of them, the worst day in the year is when they have to go in and talk to those uh, bean counters on, on budget matters. And the reason, you know, I'm, I'm very sensitive to this issue is because I come out of the finance world uh, but have now been totally enamored with the world of uh, customer contact. And so I see this clash of cultures going on all the time. And uh, if you have high turnover and if you're able to make a case that, uh, in fact, you could reduce that turnover, a turnover is extremely expensive, and it's very few percenters yeah. that actually uh, <clears throat> compute the cost of turnover. If you actually compute the cost of turnover, and we've done that with many of our clients, uh, you can find that maybe uh, raising your, uh, your, your wages will, in fact, bring down uh, uh, the turnover and will, in fact, save you money in the long run. So, yeah, I, anyway. Dead, dead, dead on – well, yeah, I, I want to extend that, Bruce, because that's a dead-on point. Um, and to kind of show you the, the sort of efficacy of that idea, of the idea of fair, of fair pay, or in the United States paying a living wage um, – you know, we don't. You know, most call center contracts are written such that if volu- you know, such that uh, the the vendor pays for attrition, the client doesn't pay for attrition, right? It's the vendor's responsibility to to train new people and get them, you know, to a productive place so that the client has a seamless experience. Well, you know, I mean, we've gotten to the point where we won't take those terms in new contracts. You know, we won't take terms where we have to retrain because we deliver, you know a very low attrition rate. And so whether you're an internal contact center manager or an external, there are true financial gains to, to be had. Bruce, you're absolutely right by attacking that attrition rate by, by giving people a, a living wage. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Alan, do we have any more questions? I think maybe we have time for one more question before we end the, uh, the session, but this has been fabulous. Yes. We have another one from James. He says, how do you measure economic and social progress for your agents? <clears throat> so we measure economic and social progress in, in a bunch of different ways. But the, the core one is, you know, you've got to understand really, you know, two key, two key metrics when it comes to compensation. So I'm going to focus on compensation because I know we don't have a lot of time. Number one is what's the minimum wage? Right. If you're in the United States, even if you're outside the United States, you know, a, a call center job should not be and cannot be a minimum wage job. You just won't attract 
the type of people that can be successful. The other thing you have to benchmark against is the poverty rate. Okay. When you, when you are paying at or below the poverty rate, you're paying, you are engendering problems into your workforce that you may not know or understand. For example, most people living, you know, at poverty in, um, whether it's in the developing world or in you know, more economically challenged places in the United States, they're not going to be able to afford reliable transportation. They're going to have other challenges in their lives or in their family unit that, that is going to spill over and cause absenteeism. You know, there are other things like that that just don't happen when you have enough money to afford the basics. Um, health, of course, is an issue. You know, I mean, we've, we, we've all heard about you know, these food, um, you know, these food uh, deserts, they call them, in, in the inner cities. So, First and foremost, you know, think about compensation, think about and benchmark it. It's, all this data is available. You, know, you, you just have to go to the Labor Department's website. All this data is available um, for your local area so you can know. But again, if you do nothing else, ask you know, what's the minimum wage and what's the poverty rate in my area and really see where, you're, where, you're, you know, where your pay measures. Okay, that's great. One of the things actually that I could uh, insert here too is um, – the compensation issue can sometimes become a source of a lot of creativity. You have to be careful with it. But, for instance, there was one situation where we had a client that was in an area uh, that was growing. There were more call centers coming in. Uh, they were losing people to, you know, a 50 cent uh, an hour greater wage down the road type of thing. And uh, one of the things that they did was to empower people to increase their own wages, by a formula that has to be very carefully constructed, but if it's done properly and if you have the actual tools to uh, do it properly, it uh, can be very exciting because an agent who is able to do things like uh, reduce their average handle time, not by pushing people off the phone and getting them upset, but rather by uh, being uh, coached and trained in uh, call handling and in efficient uh, call closure, um, at the same time, keeping up the customer satisfaction side of things can actually be a way that you can uh, split the difference. In other words, you can actually uh, cause that person to become more productive. They can have more in their paycheck, and they can actually see where it's coming from and why. And uh, they're uh, also at the same time being monitored with regard to the quality aspects that uh, you want and adherence aspects that you want them to have. So without going into a lot of detail, if you put together uh, attendance on a monthly basis, for instance, attendance, adherence, um, and uh, their average handle times and their quality scores, which have to be right down to the agent level in order for this to, uh, old scheme to work, uh, then you can have a situation in which they will uh, be able to actually impact their own um, uh, their own uh, salaries, their own pay, bring home more at the end of the month, and feel empowered to actually do a better job. So, anyway, that was just a thought there. Well, this yeah, has been fabulous. It's true, and I, I – go sorry, ahead, Bruce. I, I, gotta, I do have to kind of say one quick thing about that. Um, as a bit of a cautionary tale for managers, you know, working on incentive, on incentive programs, you know, do keep in mind that – you know, if salaries, you know, if those those incentive factors are too large a percentage of salaries, in in an agent, you know, in, in a position of call center agent, you know, they're you know, people are still going to try and fit the budget into the minimum that they're going to earn, right? And again, we go back to the principle: if the minimum is too low against the local um, 
the, the, the local um, poverty rate or minimum wage, you know, you're actually going to end up shooting yourself in the foot, which is what you said. You have to craft it very carefully because then mm-hmm. people, you know, could get just sort of buried, you know, by their inability to or, or by their need to achieve the formula in order just to make their basic bills. So, that, you know, that, that, that psychology is a little bit of a boomerang effect. It can work great or it can, you know, it can really, it can really hurt you in a negative way. So. It does. It needs to be sort of implemented in the right way, in the right places, and with the right systems. Because uh, the other thing is, if, for instance, your systems are not giving you the right in, uh, right information on those agents, and they start not trusting it, then you've just ruined it all. So that's why I say it has to be really carefully done. But uh, since we're, you know, one of the things about this program is we explore ideas. Uh, this has been a fabulous episode because uh, Mike, you've helped us to explore something in a, a whole new way. Uh, really, thank you for sharing uh, this information because you've sort of brought us into an unusual area for a lot of call center managers in terms of the discussions we have, uh, but also sort of sharing your vision on how uh, new realities can be made while keeping your feet on the ground in terms of um, you know all those things that we have to do as managers. So uh, thanks very much for that. Are there any last uh, things you'd like to say before we hand things over to Alan? No, I just, you know, thank you very much. Uh, it was, it was great to be here. I, you know, you and I have had great discussions, you know, uh, at, at PACE conferences and, and, uh, you know, and thank you for holding me uh, intellectually accountable at times. So um, this was great. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to, to, to do this and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll look forward to our next, uh, you know, uh, I'll, you know, very lively debate. Okay. And I'm going to share with our listeners, too, that you're actually in Germany right now. So, really, you went above and beyond in terms of uh, being available for this. We really appreciate it, Mike. Uh, not a problem. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure and uh you know, and, and certainly I'm in Berlin right now, which, you know, has had a lot of great ideas and, and thinkers, you know, here, both and bad through the centuries. And, and so it's, it's very inspiring. And, and so I'll, I'll, I'll keep doing what I'm doing and hopefully you're listening and folks can, you know, taste what we're done and improve their own situations. Okay, good. Have a bratwurst on us. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll hand things over to Alan now. Thanks again to Mike Dershowitz and Bruce Belfiore for your insightful discussion on today's show. Be sure to join us next month for another great show or look at our huge selection of archived shows and topics at BenchmarkPortal.com. Then click on Call Talk where you'll find over eight seasons of this show. From all of us at Benchmark Portal, keep those headsets steady and your fingers ready. This is Alan Pockhotter signing out. Have a great day.